grateful again for the time together. Thank you for uh, the blessing of opening your word. We pray that you guide us now. Give us wisdom. Uh, These are hard issues. These are tricky issues. And uh, we want to honor you. We want to be wise. We want to be charitable to other people. And, uh, And really, Lord, think about how we can best care for your people. So guide us as we study your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, we're going to talk about uh, psychotropic drugs and biblical counseling. Uh, It is no surprise to you when I remind you that um, Americans are highly medicated people. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, um, I praise the Lord for a lot of that because there are a lot of diseases and illnesses and conditions which in the past people would be dead or be very, very, uh, have difficult lives and and unpleasant feelings and and doctors and medications and interventions can help with that and we we should praise the Lord for that insofar as they're helpful in those ways. Um, But when we think about medication used to treat psychological issues or what we're calling counseling problems, Um, we should expect that a lot of the people that we engage in caring, counseling conversations are going to be on medication. And, uh, you know, my straw poll here, you guys know at Grace Bible Church here, we have a free community counseling ministry. We have uh, over 15 certified biblical counselors that all give some of their hours each week to care for people in our community. And uh, just looking at the paperwork that we get in, I would say about 50% to two-thirds of the people we see for counseling are on a psychotropic medication of some point. And uh, and let me just tell you, I I tell you that just to say that's kind of the way it is. I'm not saying whether that's good or bad, and I'm not a sociologist or anything like that. I'm just telling you that's the reality of what things are like here in Hood County. And uh, it may be similar, it may be different where you're from. Um, but just to give you some an idea here, uh, this is from a, uh, a website called Psych Central that monitors all things psychological in terms of trends. They do a top 25 psychiatric medication list. Uh, they do that periodically. The most recent list they did was in 2020. So um, the top, well, what, the, the number one prescribed psychological medication. What do you think it is? It's not Prozac. It's not uh, Xanax. No, I I can't pronounce half of these, but no, it's not that. Haven't heard it yet. No. No, yeah, Cetralin. It's it's Zoloft, okay? Zoloft is the number one 38.22 million prescriptions in 2020, $523 million. Lexapro is number two at 30.6 million prescriptions. Wellbutrin at 28.9 million prescriptions. Um, Trazodone, 26.2 million prescriptions. Prozac is all the way down to number six. I, I feel like this is like the, the college football uh, statistics here. Um, yeah, Prozac, number seven, Cymbalta, number eight, Lex, uh, Celexa. Xanax is down to number nine. Interestingly, uh, in 2020, so the year that we're talking about here, more than 252 million prescriptions were prescribed for mental health conditions, which is actually down from 255 million back in 2018. 
And uh, anyway, it's just, it's just fascinating here. And again, I'm not telling you what to think about this, okay? You probably have an opinion. I might have an opinion, but that's not the point. I'm just saying this is the reality of life we live in. Lots of people are on psychotropic medications. There's lots of money being spent, and I know we all have uh, opinions about that. But that's, that's just kind of the way things are. And that's why we want to talk about this. I, I'm, I'm here to tell you um, I am not a medical doctor. And uh, what I'm going to tell you is based off of medical doctors in the biblical counseling community that have written on this subject. I'm thankful that I have a team here. Uh, we have represented in our CBCD speaker lineup here. We have a medical doctor uh, who's teaching in the advanced topics. Uh, we have a pharmacist that we consult with. Uh, we have a pediatrician right here in our church. And we are thankful for our medical professionals because they advise our counseling team when issues related to medicine and um, psychotropic drugs and medical needs come into play. We are going to talk in this hour and then also tomorrow afternoon when we talk about physical illnesses, we're going to talk about what is the role of the biblical counselor when your counselee is on medication or when they do have some sort of medical issue. And I want to talk to you very carefully about the ethical issues in that, and I want to make sure that I'm clear about what our role is as a biblical counselor and what our role is not. Um, suffice it to say right now, uh, biblical counselors should never function as medical professionals. Uh, we don't give medical advice. We don't tell people what to do with their medication. We, we don't give a perspective. Uh, we don't go research it on Google, and then we give. It, we don't do any of that. Okay, N not that that's a problem when it's you and your friend. You and your friend at church, right? It, you know that's fine. But when you're functioning in a formal role as a biblical counselor. You're functioning as a faith-based counselor. You're not functioning as a medical professional. Even we have people on our counseling team here that have medical credentials. And uh, our consent form clearly says, even if you are medically trained, you're not using those credentials. You're not functioning with that hat on, so to speak, when you're functioning as a biblical counselor. Okay? So you say, well, wait a minute. What if they're on medication and they want to get off? Or what if they have... Okay, we'll talk about that. Okay, we'll talk about how we handle that. But I just want to say that up front. Um, Statistics are, are all over the place. Um, this is a few years old. One expert of uh, SSRIs, uh, which is a class of antidepressants, concluded up to six prescriptions per second around the clock, around the year, are said to be written for these agents. Six prescriptions per second. Um, Time article back a few years ago, 27 million Americans are on antidepressants. Uh, so we should expect, as, as biblical counselors, even though we're not, we're not getting into that world in terms of giving advice, we do need to educate ourselves in regard to our role and what some of these things are about because we should expect that a large percentage of our counselees are already going to be on that. But my straw poll here, my, my non-scientific, just kind of looking at the paperwork, I'd say about 50 to two-thirds of the people are on a prescription coming through our community counseling ministry. So what are people on? Just some classes of uh, drugs used in uh, the psychological world, antidepressants, anti-anxiety agents, mood stabilizers, tranquilizers, which are an older class of uh, medications, but they're still used, antipsychotics, pain medications, anticonvulsants, which are used uh, in like seizure conditions as well but are also used to treat certain psychological disorders. So that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about psychotropic meds. We're, we're talking about medications in those drug classes 
that are used to treat some sort of psychological syndromes or symptoms. Now, again, I want to I direct you toward biblical counseling resources that are written by medical experts who happen to also be biblical counselors. So the two books that I'm going to pull from in my talk here is a, a book called Blame It on the Brain by Ed Welch and a book called Will Medicine Stop the Pain by Elise Fitzpatrick and Laura Hendrickson. Laura Hendrickson was a psychiatrist who became a biblical counselor, and so she was one of the, she's with the Lord now, but when she was writing, uh, she wrote very helpfully about issues like psychotropic medication. There's also a brand new book, and I was, I was going to bring show and tell, and I just, I just totally dropped the ball. Uh, we'll talk about it later on. There's a brand new book out called The Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference. It's in your resources, and uh, they've got a whole section on psychological drugs and how we think about that. So if you're kind of like, hey, I want to be a biblical counselor, but I don't know how to think about this, uh, these resources will help you. And then again, we've we got a great counseling team here. We have a medical uh, advisory uh, group that we turn to. So if you're like, hey, Pastor Keith, uh, I've got a case like this. What do you do? Um, uh, we're happy to share. Again, we can't give specific advice for your case, but we're happy to talk about, as a biblical counselor, how would you approach a situation like that. Okay? All right, so with that in mind, you saw this last hour. I want to review what we talked about back in September when we talked about people and the nature of people and how God made us. And you'll remember back in that weekend that the Bible tells us that people are comprised or made up of a inner man and an outer man. So, for example, if we, uh, you don't need to turn there, but Second uh, Corinthians chapter four, verse sixteen, Paul reminds us that though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is renewed day by day. And and Paul is not, uh, he's describing his affliction there. But basically, what he's saying is, remember, human beings are both body and spirit. We're outer man, inner man. Um, we have a material part of us, and then there's an immaterial, a spiritual part of us. And so if we kind of put that together in a graphic way, I hope this is helpful to you, uh, outer man, inner man, right? So we, we think of the outer man as the brain, the body, that's our glands, our organs, our circulatory system, all the chemicals in our body, our blood, all those things that make up our physical body. But the Bible's perspective is that people are more than biology, People are more than just the material substances that make up our body. In fact, the Bible says the most important parts of us are immaterial. You, you remember when, um, when King David was coming to power and the prophet went, uh, Samuel went to visit Jesse and uh, he's looking at the boys, right? And um, here, here's the oldest and he's strong and tall and, and right? Well, no, that's not the one God picked, right? And he goes down the aisle, next son, next son, we run, we've run out of sons and Samuel looks at, at uh, Jesse and says, do you have any more boys? And Jesse says, oh, well, there's, there's little David. He's out tending to the sheep. Samuel says, bring him. And as he came in, uh, remember Samuel anointed him and said, this is going to be the next king. And you remember what he said? He said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on what? The heart, right? See, the Bible says it's that inner man, it's that real you that's the spiritual part of you that's most important. And just as a footnote, you see my little heart picture there and, and even quoting that verse. When the Bible uses the word heart, remember it's not talking about the organ that pumps the blood in your chest. It's talking about that immaterial part of you, which is sometimes called the mind or the spirit or the soul. 
Uh, those are all representative of the inner man. So why does, why does God look on the heart? Because God cares about the real you. Why? Because it's the real you that leads you to do what you do. You know, I, I, have, I have two boys, right? I grew up with two boys in my house and, and a, a wonderful rose between thorns, my daughter, right in the middle, right? And my two boys were always getting at it, right? And, you know, if I walk in one day and, and my, my younger son goes off and punches his older son because he ran off with the Lego set, I don't look at my son and say, bad arm, bad hand, you know, bad, right? I don't, ta- I don't call his arm to repent, right? What do I do? I call him to repent. I tell him he made a wrong choice. It's, you know, it's not his hand or his arm that was the real culprit. It was that inner person that responded to the Lego inter, uh, incident with anger and chose to take matters into his own hands through physical violence. And it was that inner man that actually commanded his outer man to strike his brother. You see, we, and, and every parent knows that, right? No one says, repent, hand, repent. That's all we're saying. We, we know that intuitively. We, we know there's something beyond biology that's going on there, and the Bible affirms that. Okay? So when we think about, uh, this is called biblical psychosomatics, and don't, don't let that word scare you off. Uh, psychosomatics just means the relationship between the body and the spirit, the outer man and the inner man. Uh, Ed Welch, in that one of those books I mentioned, writes this. With our minds or our hearts, we are responsible before God and we respond to Him either for or against. Our minds are the initiators of all moral action. Uh, that's what I was trying to convey to my son, right? Even though his hand was implicated in the violence shown to his brother, it's really his heart, his mind, that is the cause of that wrong behavior because it's his mind and his heart that is responsible as the moral agent behind the violence. In contrast, the body, the outer man, is the mediator of moral action rather than the initiator. That makes sense, right? When my son chooses to respond in anger and violence, that's a heart response, an inner man response, and then that inner man response initiates his body to cause the violence. So that's how the Bible views moral actions and moral behavior. The body is merely carrying out what the inner man is deciding to do at a moral level. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Okay, hopefully that's not controversial, but uh, that's the biblical view of anthropology. So Ed Welch has this great term. He, He calls the body the equipment for the heart. It's the, it's the equipment for the heart. It's how the heart expresses itself, how the heart carries out various actions. Now, if you're tracking with me, let's go one more step, okay? At the level of the brain, this unity between the mind and heart and the body suggests that the heart or spirit will always be represented or expressed in the brain's chemical activity. Now, now stop right there. I know it's Friday night. I know you're tired. And I know I about wore you out last hour, okay? So just, just follow what he's saying. If the inner man leads to the outer man carrying out its actions, and we recognize that the brain has executive function over the body, what Ed Welch is saying here is that we should expect that when the heart, the inner man, makes a moral decision, that that's going to be represented somehow in the brain's chemistry and how the body carries that out. 
right? It's represented there in the chemical activity. That is a prediction of what the Bible teaches about the inner man and outer man. Okay, now no, stay with me. Back to Welch. When we choose good or evil, such decisions will be accompanied by changes in brain activity. I'm not a medical doctor, I'm not a brain expert, but I know enough to know that when my son got angry and decided to respond with violence with his brother, that his inner man is what commanded his outer man through his brain, through that neurological system, to punch his brother. Now again, I I don't know all the schematics of how that works, but I do know that was the sequence. I do know that's what happened. That's what Welch is saying here. Now, Now follow me on this. This does not mean that the brain causes these decisions. Right? Can you see that? Even though the brain is implicated in the action carried out, in this case punching the brother, the brain is merely the mediator between the inner man and the body carrying out that action. The brain is not the cause of those decisions. Instead, it simply means that the brain renders those desires of the heart into a physical medium. Or as Ed Welch says here, it's as if the heart always leaves its footprints on the brain. Did you get that? So, so, so when we hear, hey, here's this person over here who's really, really got an anger issue, or here's this person over here who's really, really dealing with fear and anxiety, and we do a brain scan, and their brains look different. Christians don't freak out. Christians say, well, that's what the Bible's predicted all along. The Bible's predicted that. Because when we make moral choices in that inner man, it gets translated through our brain into our body into the experience of anger or anxiety or fear or depression or whatever it is we're talking about. That doesn't mean the brain causes those issues. It means the brain is merely carrying out what the heart is doing in response. The Bible's anthropology, that is the Bible's view of people, predict that brain activity is going to look different based on the different moral choices that people are making. The, you say, well, why are all these people saying, oh, the brains are different, they have a brain disease. See, that's not a function of the data studied, that's a function of the, of the researcher's anthropology. They look at those imaging and they don't believe in an inner man, they don't believe in a heart, they don't believe in a spirit, they don't believe what the Bible says about a spiritual part of you, so they see that brain structure difference and then they go, see... The brain's implicated. The the brain did it. But that's a function of their theory of people, not a function of the data itself. Does that make sense? Now, a footnote. I'm not saying there isn't such a thing as brain disease or brain damage or traumatic brain injury. We're going to talk about that, okay? Because there is obviously a scenario where brains can be damaged or diseased, and we'll talk about that. I'm just saying that what we're seeing here in terms of thinking about biblical anthropology is that the inner man is the true cause of moral action that is carried out by the outer man. Are you with me? Awesome. Okay. So, back to our text here. Um, We recognize that though the the mind or heart, that inner man, instructs the body, the body also affects the heart. You know this, right? When you're sick or have a disease, including brain damage, if you have a physical injury, like a traumatic brain injury, if you have a physical or mental disability, if you're hungry, good night, you're not going to be hungry at the CBCD conference. We're going to make sure of that, right? Uh, But not here. But, you know, you might be tired. We, we, We might be better at that. 
um, hormonal changes, different strengths and weaknesses, meaning we all have different talents and abilities. We, we, we all have certain capabilities and intellectual levels and, and skills, and those are all different, right? Uh, now you start introducing medications, illegal drugs, other substances, chemical dependence, brain changes. Those are all real physiological realities, and while they don't cause a person's moral behavior, they certainly influence it sometimes in great ways. So as a biblical counselor, we, we need to be saying, you know, even though that person is morally responsible for what they're doing, nonetheless, their body might be influencing or contributing to that in some way that we would want to pay attention to. You know, th- this is why uh, in counseling, uh, when we see physiological symptoms or other symptoms that might point to that, we want to send that person back to their doctor to get a full checkup and just make sure there isn't something bodily going on that's influencing the behavior or the emotion that we're seeing. Uh, it's also why uh, when we talk about medications, which is our main topic today, uh, when, when we have questions there or issues there, we want to send them back to their doctor to let their doctor evaluate their medications and if any, any changes are needed there. But the point is, all of those physical realities affect how we respond. And you know that. You know, some of us were are young parents. Some of us were young parents. And you remember how that is. When that, that kid hasn't slept all night long, which means you haven't slept all night long, and you get up the next day sleep-deprived, and you're trying to be patient with little, that little one who has no respect at all for your schedule, right? And you might be a little bit irritable. You might be a little bit... Prone to anger, right? And again, you're still morally responsible before God for your response. But that sleep deprivation certainly influences how you're going to respond to that. So here's our, here's our chart again, and this is all in your notes here, but we can see the black line really represents the heart's influence on the brain and the body, right? So the inner man's driving the outer man. But the green arrow is designed to illustrate that though the heart is responsible for moral action, the body responds by putting pressure back on the heart through some of those things that can influence how we respond morally. So again, as a biblical counselor, we want to think about the inner man, but we don't want to neglect the outer man either because the outer man is important. Okay. Now, conclusion. A person is always responsible before God for how he or she responds to these bodily influences. A person's body, including the brain, cannot make a person sin in such a way that he is not responsible before God. And the corollary of that corollary of that fact that the brain cannot make us sin is this the brain cannot keep a person from following Jesus in faith and obedience. Okay? Now that conclusion is a function of what the Bible teaches about people. Uh, we can talk about all the ways the brain can be diseased or damaged or, and all that influences, but we, we can't ever say, the Bible never says, your brain did it, your body did it, and, and thus you're not responsible. The, the Bible, even in situations of great bodily difficulty, still says, with Christ's help, with God's grace, there is hope that you can move toward Christ's likeness. You, you don't have to. You don't have to settle for an ungodly response. Uh, whenever I think of this, uh, many, many of you know, um, uh, some of you know this, um, my 40-year-old little brother, he turned 40 this year, makes me feel old, um, he has severe cerebral palsy. 
Uh, he was born three months premature, uh, two pounds, ten ounces, and uh, that was back in the early 80s when uh, science had not figured out how to give preemies um, steroids to provoke the lung development, and so he had to go on a ventilator. And somewhere in between the delivery and get him on the ventilator and all that, uh, he uh, was deprived of oxygen to his brain, which likely called the, caused the cerebral palsy, which is just uh, a, a form of brain damage. Um, he, um, by God's grace, can talk. Um, he is in a power wheelchair. He um, can one-finger type. And he can you know, dial his phone. And um, he uh, requires complete assistance 24 hours a day. Uh, he cannot feed himself. He cannot clothe himself. He can't use the restroom on his own. He can't take a shower. Um, he can't drive a car. And uh, so he has 24-hour care um, and has for every day of his life for 40 years. Um, he is in continual pain. He has severe muscle spasms that affect him all throughout the day, and they are so overwhelming that if I'm talking to my brother and he has one, he just kind of stops, and I kind of know, okay, brother's having a... Give him some time, and, and he'll work through that muscle spasm. You can see it all over his body, the pain. And, um, and that's normal life. Um, he has a real, authentic faith in Jesus that I hope my faith is like someday. Because that condition, as difficult as it is, as much as it has affected his body, and most of us, unless you've cared for a son or daughter or a family member, some of you may have done that, unless you've gone through it, you have no idea what life is like. You talk about physical affliction, and you know what? Um... It has not kept him from following Jesus. And every week I talk to him, and he'll talk to me about his impatience. He'll talk to me about his anger. We talk about our parents getting older and all the things they do when they get old. Um, and he has never once said to me, you know what, because I have CP, it's okay if I do those things. He recognizes that he's morally responsible before God, and there's nothing about his condition that limits his ability to know the grace of Jesus and to walk with him. And I would say to you, as someone who, who grew up with him and knows him very, very well, I would say that physical affliction has enhanced his faith. He, he, he gets it. And when he thinks about that, that glorified body that all believers are going to have someday... Um, I, I think that is more appealing to him than probably most of us. And I say that to say, this is a hard conclusion. It's a function of biblical truth. I believe the Bible teaches this, but I just want you to know, um, I've seen this played out in my family. I've seen it played out. We grew up in the, in the community of disabled children and families. That was my growing up years. Uh, we walk alongside people here in our counseling ministry with physical affliction. And just because you have a body problem or even a brain problem, even a severe brain problem, the grace of Jesus is sufficient to help that person to walk with God. The question is, in a moment where we get an opportunity to care for somebody like that, are we going to follow what Scripture says? Are we going to believe that? 
or are we going to listen to something or someone else? And so I want to encourage you to, to no, don't, don't abandon your theology in difficult cases. Watch what Christ can do when you take him at his word. Now, in contrast with that model, uh, I showed you this last hour. This is the sort of the world's perspective. This is what the world largely believes. It's built on a materialistic view, and, and that is a philosophy that says only material stuff exists. There is no such thing as a soul, a spirit, um, a spiritual heart, right? There's no such thing as those things. So th- this is the anthropological model. This is the view of people that the world expresses today. So if we apply that to an area of um, thinking about uh, chemicals and and uh, psychotropic drugs, we recognize that that in in that worldview, there's nothing beyond the brain, right? You know, you say, I'm having these body issues. There's nothing behind the brain. It's got to be the brain. The brain has to be uh, the problem because there's nothing else to blame. So in that perspective... The brain must be the final and ultimate cause of behavior. However, remember, that's a function of the theory that's not a function of the science. Uh, we, this, is a, this is a place where we have to believe what God says about the nature of human beings. Let that be our model, and then we go out there and we try to understand what's going on with people. Okay. Now, the other thing we have to talk about is the difference between how medicine and psychiatry diagnose disease. In medicine, we recognize that there are behaviors, uh, behavioral problems, which truly have an organic cause, right? That there are real medical conditions that manifest themselves in certain feelings or emotions or behaviors. And, and when that happens, that condition is given what we call a medical disease diagnosis. And, and usually the name reflects the cause, not the symptoms, Right? Um, so, for example, just to give you an example of that, and, and I would refer you back to the Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference. For example, uh, the one we, we often use because it's simple to understand in biblical counseling and medicine is the issue of hypothyroidism. So, you guys know you have a thyroid uh, up here in your in your neck, and uh, that thyroid one of its jobs is to produce a thyroid hormone, which is part of your endocrine system. We understand that sometimes people's thyroids will not. Uh, secrete enough of that thyroid hormone, and one of the one of the effects of that is a person feels lethargic. They feel down. They don't feel themselves. They might even feel sad. And uh, and we'd say, well, that sounds like depression to me, except it's not depression. It's a function of a medical disease which is easily treated with medication. So that's how we think of medical issues that are diagnosed that lead to either behavioral or emotional sort of symptoms. In contrast to that, in psychiatry, psychiatry bases uh, diagnoses of syndromes not on um, not so much on the cause, but on symptoms of behavior. And there is no general agreement on the cause for those symptoms or behavior. We can say, well, if we use DSM criteria and the person meets those DSM criteria for a a depressive disorder, let's say, well, we can agree that they meet the criteria. But what there isn't any agreement on is why they're depressed or what we should do about it. And that's where all these different counseling systems have different answers. 
Uh, one counselor might give a antidepressant. One might say, go to group therapy and CBT therapy. One might say, hey, here's this alternative treatment, this herb, this whatever, right? This intervention that works just as good as the antidepressant or better. And it's natural. So we're not, it's not synthetic. And this person says, oh, I went to this, uh, this therapy uh, program. I went to this group therapy. I did yoga. I did, right? There's no agreement uh, about what's going to be the best uh, treatment in that regard. So if you think of medicine, we're thinking about the disease causing symptoms, right? But in psychiatry, we have to work backwards. We start with symptoms and then theorize as to the cause. But as uh, Alan Francis said in that last slide, there is absolutely no consensus about the cause of any psychological disorder. And uh, the first time I heard that, I was like, really? I mean, we have we have the best of medicine and research and doctors and scientists and... What do you mean we don't know the cause of at least one psychological disorder? We don't. And, and I think there's a reason for that. I think sometimes you know, there, there may be medical issues that we're still yet to discover. But what, what Christians have found is that a lot of times what the world is calling a psychological issue is actually a spiritual problem that requires a spiritual intervention. Now, when I say that... I'm not saying at all that the problem is not real. I'm saying the problem is actually more real than people actually realize. And that's where I think we as Christians have a wonderful opportunity to take the spiritual resources of God's Word and and the person and work of Christ and minister to that person to help them to see that what has been misdiagnosed as a psychological problem is actually a spiritual issue that God through His Word can remedy. So we have an opportunity to do that. Um, you know, this, the way psychological diagnoses are made also creates confusion because of the terminology. We, we recognize that uh, psychological labels and terms are merely, are merely just shorthand for a series of symptoms, right? So a major depressive disorder is shorthand for saying this person meets certain diagnostic criteria in DSM. ADHD, same thing. My child meets a certain diagnostic criteria. But here's how we use the label. We'll hear someone say, uh, my son can't help it, he has ADHD. And that makes it sound like he has a medical disease and therefore he's not responsible for the poor moral decisions that he's making. Now, we can talk about you know, how we want to think about that, but all I'm trying to say is that's a complete misunderstanding of what the label actually means. The label is not saying anything about the cause or whether it's a medical condition or not. The label's just saying little Johnny meets certain criteria in terms of the behavior that he's manifesting. So we, we have to understand this. And I'm saying this because we have to be able to think rightly and, and biblically about what we're hearing and what we're describing. Now, a footnote, I'm not saying Johnny isn't really uh, dealing with those things, right? And I'm not saying we say, oh, mom, it's no big deal. No, no, I, we need to care for the son and the parents in, in situations like that. But it starts by understanding what the label means and what it doesn't mean. Okay. Um, why are drugs used to treat mental disorders? Well, uh, the, one of the main reasons, we talked about it last hour, the, the chemical imbalance theory, the biogenic theory, uh, theorizes that psychological disorders are a result of chemical imbalance in the brain. We give them drugs to fix those imbalances, and uh, it cures the person of the condition. That's the theory. Uh, we've already talked about it last hour, that that theory has been long abandoned. It's never been proven. And uh, therefore, researchers have moved on into other models of why people struggle with mental disorders. 
the problem is, you, you say, well, why do I keep hearing about chemical imbalance? I was doing a simple Google search, and I got an ad that referenced a chemical imbalance. It was trying to sell me something. Why does that keep happening? Because it sells solutions. It sells products. Um, and, and, like we talked about last hour, a lot of people who take those products feel better. So it helps some people, and it sells a lot of products. Now, again, a footnote. I'm not here saying that's bad or the drug industry or big pharma. I'm not making any opinion on that. I'm just saying that's why the theory, in part, continues is because it does help some people, and it does sell a lot of products. Okay? So you've, you've seen the, uh, like your um, fuel gauge on your car, your serotonin level is on E. Serotonin is one of... Dozens and dozens of neurotransmitters that you have in your body. Uh, one of the psychotropic drugs that we talked about earlier specifically target uh, serotonin uh, as a, um, a means of uh, how the mechanism of the drug is supposed to work. Okay. So, what's that? Which graph? This is the picture? That one? Okay, I'm sorry. You want to take a picture of it? All right, I'll give you 10 seconds to get your camera and take a picture of it. It's just a gas meter with serotonin. You know, it's, uh, all right. Sorry about that. I try to put everything in your notes, but uh, every now and then I miss stuff. So, Okay, so, so there we go. So go back to our model. This makes sense, right? If this is what the world thinks about people and we have a problem, it must be a brain problem. So what are we going to do? We're going to give a medication that treat that problem and it supposedly results in improved feeling and function. We say, great, what's wrong with that? The problem with that, like I said, is that, that that's a theory that's never been proven. It's been abandoned. And uh, while some people do improve, um, not everybody does. And, and one of the other things you see is that people that start taking medications over time, that medication doesn't help them as much. And so they have to increase the dose or they have to go to a different medication. Um, so again, and by the way, I'm not, I'm, I'm not making a judgment on taking medication. I'm, not say, I'm just saying this is why the world does what it does. Okay, now there is one significant problem with the theory, and I mentioned this. I've given you a bunch of quotes here. I'm not going to read them all, but these are from leading researchers in psychology and psychiatry that are telling us that that biogenic theory, the chemical imbalance theory, uh, is, is not true, Okay. And we've moved on to other models, other um, theories about why people struggle with depression or, or anxiety or whatever. And uh, you can read those on your own time. I'm just, I'm just trying to demonstrate to you that as a non-medical person, I'm not making this stuff up. I, I'm saying this is what the research is actually teaching. And again, our medical team here uh, has affirmed that for us. So again, uh, the myth of chemical imbalance from uh, 2017 there. Uh, Stephen Stahl, let's talk about Mr. Stahl. Y you know that you're an expert in your field when you can go on Amazon and you have a whole line of books called the Stahl's Essential Series. That's what Mr. Stahl, he's got, he's got his own book set, okay? I slugged my way through the Essential Psychopharmacology book, very interesting, way over my head in the most part, but this, this, this I could understand. And essentially what he's saying is we no longer even believe that we're going to find a simple neurotransmitter imbalance that explains any psychological disorder. It's a lot more complicated than that. Okay, so you can look at those on your own time. 
The biological model continues because about 50 to 75% of persons improve if you give them an antidepressant. But this is interesting, too. When you do comparative research, this has been demonstrated in the literature many times, CBT, electroconvulsive therapy, even placebo, and some alternative uh, medications as well are shown to be just as effective as psychological medications in treating depression, just to give you one example. Um, Now, a footnote on that. Again, I'm not saying whether drugs are right or wrong. I'm not making a judgment on people that choose to use them. I'm, I'm just telling you what the research says, and we'll, we'll pull together a biblical perspective here in a minute, okay? As Christians, the biological model is something we should reject. You say, why should we reject the biological model when so many smart people believe it? Because the Bible's view of people contradicts that model. You can't hold to a materialistic view of persons that believes the biogenic theory when the Bible says that's not how God made people. We're inner man and outer man. We're a soul and a a body. Um, So we're not rejecting it because we're experts in science. We're rejecting it because we've read our Bibles and we've concluded that that model is inconsistent with what the Word of God says. Uh, We also recognize the mechanism of many drugs is unknown. Improvement of symptoms as a result of medication does not prove there was a chemical imbalance. And that's what the research is saying. The research is coming back saying a lot of people do improve on on psychological medications, but we can produce similar results with other interventions. So that's pulling the data away from saying there was some sort of medical problem that they had. Um, Okay, so so that's kind of where the research is. And... um, uh, we'll talk more about this in a moment when we come back to talk about depression. But for now, let's, let's just kind of move on, okay? Uh, medications are not remotely 100% effective. That's all, I already did that. Okay. And then we saw this quote uh, last hour about how psychiatric medication actually works. That's repeated there uh, in context, okay? Now, let's come back to our text here then, our notes. The Bible emphasizes a person's heart response as most important, not changing a person's feelings. So let's turn in our Bibles just to just to remind ourselves of this. We looked at this last time in Mark chapter 10. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And let's remind ourselves of a text that we looked at back in the September weekend. I'm sorry, I said Mark 10. Mark 7, please. Mark chapter 7. Uh, This is in that context where Jesus is talking about what you put into your body versus what comes out of your heart. And uh, there was a debate amongst the Pharisees because the disciples weren't engaging in these ceremonial washings that the Pharisees had concocted. And uh, Jesus, um, just trying to straighten everybody out here, says in chapter 7 of Mark, verse 14, he says, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there's nothing outside of the man which can defile him since it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man, that's what defiles the man. Verse 17, when he had left the crowd, he entered the house, the disciples questioned him. And he answered them and said, are you still so lacking? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? And and by defile, what Jesus is getting at is it it doesn't render you unholy before God. It doesn't make you uh, unacceptable before God. It's not what you're putting into your body that does that. Verse 19, because it doesn't go into his heart, the inner man, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20, and he was saying, it's that which proceeds out of the man 
That's what defiles him. That, that's the God cares about your heart comment from Samuel, right? Verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts and fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things proceed from within. All these evil things proceed from within, and that's what defiles the man. So Jesus is saying, it's what comes out of your heart that really matters. And Jesus here is connecting the moral behavior of people not to the body doing it, but to the heart producing it. And that's reinforcing this model of anthropology that we're talking about. Um, If we go a little bit further, we recognize that it's not our feelings that are most important. It's the heart's response. In fact, the Bible teaches that our affective feelings are the result of beliefs, thinking, and action. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold looking up some of those verses till we talk about depression next hour. But suffice it to say, sometimes you and I experience feelings that actually are arising from our inner man, from moral choices that we're making, not because of body processes alone. Um, so those affective feelings, things like anxiety, anger, Uh, worry, fear, those are feelings that are arising as the affections from that inner man that we've been talking about. So those unbiblical responses to problems often produce unpleasant feelings. We know that, right? Um, If if I... Well, go go back to the illustration with my two boys, right? If if my son gets angry at his brother because he's not getting his way and that anger rises up in his heart and leads him to violence... Um, probably about 15 minutes later, he's going to start feeling really bad about what he did because he knows and has been taught that he shouldn't lash out and demonstrate violence at his brother. So sometimes unbiblical responses produce unpleasant feelings. And then what happens is people often use those bad feelings as the reason for their inability to function. So you know this. When you're feeling guilt, when you're feeling depressed, when you're feeling anxious, that affects how you're going to respond to the next event. So let's say my son's feeling guilty, and instead of going to God in repentance and faith and receiving God's forgiveness, which actually addresses his guilt, and then goes to his brother and seeks and grants forgiveness, which actually addresses guilt, let's say he goes slumps into his room and spends the rest of the night away from the family. And then let's say he's up all night thinking about his guilt. Well, now now he's sleep-deprived, and now it comes to homework the next day. He doesn't feel like doing his homework. And that's what happens when we, we have uh, these unpleasant feelings that happen because we've responded in an unhelpful way, and now those unpleasant feelings domino down into other reasons for not functioning. When we'll talk about depression, you'll see how what depression really is, is it's a result of that process let to go out of control. So we're talking about medication, right? So medication intervenes to reduce those bad feelings, making the person feel better, and thus help him to function better. And you say, well, well what's wrong with that, right? Isn't, don't we want people to feel better and function better? Well, when the person feels better because of the improved feelings, this gives the false impression that the problem has been solved. Does that make sense? So you can give somebody a medication. You can, you can do all sorts of things to make people feel better. 
But if that guilt is still resident in the heart and it has not been handled in a biblical way before God, the person feels better, but the guilt remains. Do you see it? We haven't actually addressed the heart problem. So even though the feelings can be improved through medication, the heart is not addressed. And and that's where biblical counselors say, we care about medication. Not because we're doctors, not because medication is wrong or right or sinful or righteous, but because the improper use of medication can actually undermine helping that person to deal with the actual spiritual problems they have that are going on in the heart. Does that make sense? So that's why it becomes an issue. So if we come back here, here's our model. The problem's like in the brain. That's the theory. We give them medication. They feel better. The person concludes the problem's been solved. But in reality, this is what's happening, right? Those, those bad feelings that the person is experiencing as a result of guilt or fear or whatever's going on down here, it, those bad feelings are meant to draw the person's attention to there's a problem down here that needs to be addressed. Maybe those bad feelings, those unpleasant feelings are not emotions that are broken. Maybe those unpleasant feelings are actually designed by God to alert you and alert me that there's something here that needs to be addressed. And the reason they're unpleasant is God saying, hey, there's something in here. Don't ignore it. Um, and it's, if you think of it, it's actually a good thing that God makes it unpleasant when we do wrong things or we respond in a wrong way because that can direct us toward the help of the gospel and the provisions of Christ. So if you give the person medication now, oh, oh, back up, sorry, went the wrong way. So if you give the person medication now, right, and the person now feels better, what happens to the motivation to address the heart? That motivation goes away. Okay. Now, footnote, I'm not saying we don't want people to feel better. We want people to feel better. But ultimately, we want to help them address the actual problem, not just feel better. And that's why this is so important. Listen to Dr. Laura Hendrickson, a psychiatrist turned biblical counselor. Emotional pain or distressing thoughts may be signs that something is not right with our heart or the inner person. Our feelings aren't dysfunctional or sick. Our feelings are doing just what they were created by God to do. They're showing us that we have a problem. And to feel better, we need to fix the problem, not just make the pain go away. Does that make sense? Again, we want people to feel better. I'm not saying medication is never inappropriate. What she's saying, what the Bible's saying is we need to be careful that in encouraging the use of medication, we're not actually making it harder for that person to actually grow and change the way God would intend them to change. Uh, She has a similar uh, quote here. Painful feelings are meant to motivate us to change. When medicine masks those painful feelings, there's no motivation to learn to deal with them in a more godly way. And then when you get off the medication, guess what? The problem's still there. The pro- you, you haven't actually solved the problem. You've just improved the feelings so that when the medication returns or as the body gets used to that medication, it becomes less and less effective. And guess what? That person's heart hasn't changed. The problem remains. Okay? So bad feelings are often God's warning system that something is wrong in the spiritual heart. Medication can mask that warning system so that issues of the heart are not addressed. And we need to remember... Christ and His Word are always sufficient to help people. Always sufficient. In this sense, we have to conclude that medication is not truly needed 
in many cases, right? It, it's not needed because Christ and his word is sufficient. Now, can medication be helpful? Sure it can sometimes. Are we thankful for medication in, in lots of realms of life? Yes, we are. But in terms of saying if a person has a spiritual issue, um, we want to we just remind ourselves that Christ and his word are sufficient to help. Okay? You say, well, okay. What? Huh? Man. When, is me- when might medication be helpful? Okay, now again, biblical counselors aren't giving medical advice. We're not making recommendations. We're not tell- telling people to get off their medications or none of that. But from a spiritual biblical perspective, when might medication actually be useful and helpful? Well, here are some examples. When a person has a real medical problem. That's obviously an example, right? Or what about this? What if they're in a danger situation? What if you've got a person who's experiencing intense hallucinations and those hallucinations are tempting them to end their own life? And a medication can help attenuate those hallucinations so that we can care for that person spiritually. At that point, medication might be the difference between life and death. And we say that's, that's probably a wise time we would want to uh, encourage that. Okay? So when there are dangerous situations, when there's real medical issues, those would be times when we would say medication is, is wise and prudent. However, medication is counterproductive when it's used to treat non-medical problems instead of turning to Christ and his word to address the heart. That's the pushback, right? We don't want to be medicating spiritual issues in place of pursuing God's interventions and provisions. Okay? And medications can be dangerous, right? There's a dependence that happens. Side effects, what Laura Hendrickson's called therapeutic tail chasing. You say, what's that? Guy goes to his doctor because he's experiencing depression. Doc puts him on an antidepressant. Uh, he feels better, but then he develops these weird sort of high-energy, um, bizarre moments of behavior. And so he goes back to his doc and says, Doc, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm acting weird. My wife says I'm acting weird. What's going on? The doc says, oh, I misdiagnosed you. That's actually bipolar disorder and begins to medicate him for bipolar disorder, when instead what was happening was he was having a side effect of the antidepressant that was producing like a hypomania episode. So what you end result, she calls it therapeutic tail chasing, because it's like you're medicating the side effect of a medication. Um, there, there can be aggression and suicidal thoughts. There was a scare about 12 years ago when uh, a bunch of younger people on antidepressants were ending their own life because... Uh, medical folks didn't realize that certain antidepressants created um, uh, more temptation to suicidal thoughts and thinking. Now there's you know black label warnings on all those medications now. So medications can be dangerous. We have to be careful uh, when they're used and how. Let me just give you some biblical principles because um, uh, where we need to land here is how do we as biblical counselors think about medications? When... when Ought they be wise? And when might they be counterproductive? And again, not so we practice medicine, but so that we are helping to give good biblical advice so that your counselee can go to his or her medical doctor and figure out medically what's appropriate. Well, let's just start with a simple one. The Word of God must be the final authority, right? Whether we use medication or not, whether we decide to do that or not, we, want, we need to let the Word of God be the authority regarding why and how we're going to do that. Secondly, symptoms need to be evaluated biblically. The Bible gives us two buckets. Symptoms are either going to be non-moral or they're going to be moral. 
right? A moral symptom is when the Bible says that activity, that thought, that behavior, that desire, that emotion is actually either righteous or sinful. When the Bible calls it a moral issue, we can't call it a medical issue and treat it like that. We have to treat it as a spiritual issue. If a person is having a physiological issue, a non-moral symptom, we say, okay, well, that that could be a body issue and we want to pursue that accordingly. So symptom evaluation is very important. Christ-like compassion is the atmosphere. Um, If someone's on an antidepressant and, and your personal view is that antidepressants aren't a good thing, Christ-like compassion means I'm not going to judge my brother or sister for that. I'm not. I'm not going to beat them up. I'm not going to criticize them. I'm not going to judge them. I'm going to care for them in the name of Christ. I'm going to help them to see God's solutions in Scripture. And uh, if the issue comes up that they want to talk to me about that from a biblical standpoint, I'm happy to talk to them about it. Um, but we're not, we're not going to go around and, and make judgments um, on other people because they may have decided to use a medication or not. Christ-like compassion is the atmosphere. Uh, fourth, the response of the heart is central. We talked about that, right? In biblical counseling, we're trying to get to the heart response, not just talk about feelings, not just talk about um, you know how the person is, is doing and feeling and responding. We, we want to address the heart, not just symptoms. Here's one of the questions you have to ask as you get to know your counselee. Is medication a grace for their suffering? Or is it actually an aspirin for sin? You get that? Medication can be a grace in suffering. It relieves suffering. And and Christians believe in helping people relieve suffering. As John Piper says, especially eternal suffering. Right? We're, We're about helping people relieve suffering. But medication may actually not be a relief in suffering so much as it is an aspirin for sin. We're giving them something that is covering up a spiritual issue that they need to address, helping them to feel better so that they don't actually address the problem. So you and I as biblical counselors, we get, that's the question we have to answer. And that's not always straightforward at times. So we, we, we need wisdom and grace to help do that. Don't encourage a counselee to go against their conscience, right? If you have a different view, Romans 14 would say, if you can't do it in faith, it's, it's sin. So we don't want to encourage them to go against their conscience. Um, a couple of these we, we already talked about, right? Apply the mastering, edifying principles. We don't have time to look at 1 Corinthians, but suffice it to say, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, even though we might have freedom in Christ to choose something, like a medication, if it tends to master me, if it tends to take over my life, and if it's not edifying in terms of growing me to be like Christ, I probably need to avoid it. Don't assume the role of physician. Uh, Help them to view suffering in the context of sanctification. We'll talk about that more tomorrow. But we want to help them to see their suffering in the context that God is using that, excuse me, using that suffering to help them to grow into Christ, into sanctification. And so we want to ultimately point them to Christ as their true source of hope. Okay, I've given you some counseling guidelines here. These come right out of the Christian Counselor's Medical Desk reference, um, uh, first developed by, by Doc Smith, Dr. Robert Smith. He's with the Lord now, and his medical reference has been updated by um, biblical counselors and medical people of uh, today's generation. So what are we going to do? We're going to get lots of information on the circumstances. We want to gather data just like we learned how to do last weekend. We want to discover how the counselee has responded to those circumstances. 
We want to ask x-ray questions to draw out the thinking, the desires, the heart issues. Um, We want to ask the question, how have they responded since being on the medication, right? How are they doing? Are they they improving? Are they not improving? Do they feel guilty? Um, Do they not feel themselves? Uh, Do they feel like they're in a fog? Um, You know, how are they responding since being on the medication? And again, we we want to uh, care for the person, right? We want to build a relationship. We want to point them to Christ and His Word. We don't want to be critical of the person's decision regarding medication. Again, that's not our role, right? We want to encourage them, help them. Whatever they've chosen to do, we meet them where we are, where they are, and we try to care for them by God's grace. Uh, We want to teach them a biblical view of problems and feelings. Again, we've talked about that. We want to show them how to turn to Christ and apply biblical principles and change, right? So, so the goal is not, um, you know, get them off the medication, right? The goal is not to, to do that. Um, instead, we want to show them a better way by turning to Christ and His Word and applying biblical principles and change. Okay, you got all the blanks? No? Yeah? Yeah, I shouldn't do that to you. I'm sorry, guys. I'll give you time. Got it? All right, let's finish this out here. Uh, The biblical goals, right? The goal is not to get them off medication. The goal is to help the person be more like Christ by responding biblically to the circumstances of life. The goal is to help the person trust Christ more through the problems rather than to focus merely on feeling better. Again, we want them to feel better, but we want them to know Christ and walk with Him and see God's solutions as even superior to that. Uh, The counselee may see in time that they do not need medication because they've learned to respond to problems through Christ and His Word. They, They may walk in one day, this happens, they say, hey counselor, why am I even on this anymore? I'm doing so much better. And we say, praise the Lord, you're doing so much better. Um, But what do we do then? What do we do then? You got that? Uh, What do we do then? Our job is not to take them off of medication, right? Uh, If they want to come off, uh, we want to learn their thinking and reasoning for doing so, right? Well, why do you want to come off? Well, I'm doing so much better. Great, awesome. Explain there's much work to do. And uh, we'll address that later on, right? We want to dig in and help them to learn to apply the means of grace to their situation. And uh, we'll deal with coming off the medication at a later time. Okay. And then when that later time rolls around, oops, I'm sorry, uh, we say, okay, at that point, I think that's a good thing. I think by God's grace, you're doing well. We send them back to their doctor. All right, that's what we do at that point. We send them back to their doctor, and we say, okay, um, we think you're at a point where you've progressed well enough in the counseling that uh, it's wise to talk to your doctor about medication, and we let the doc handle it from there. What we don't want to do is conclude the counseling right then, right? That comes sometimes that weaning off process um, is um, bumpy, <laughs> and so we want to walk with them and encourage them and make sure that as they're coming off those medications uh, that they are responding well. Okay. I'm sorry for the Keith speed finish there, um, but uh, if you if you missed any of those... I want to get you guys to a break, and then I can leave these up here if you want to put them back up, okay? Uh, at the end of your notes there, there's a list of medical doctors that are also biblical counselors, some resources, and uh, those can be helpful to you.